Hello and welcome to episode 4 of The Beethoven Files. I'm Terence O'Grady and for this episode, we're going to look at the Opus 1 piano trios, composed between 1792 and 1794. As the composer's first published works, they've obviously received a great deal of attention. We're going to focus on the first, the relatively serene piano trio in E-flat major, and the third, the more dramatic piano trio in C minor. The third trio has, in particular, garnered a lot of scrutiny since Beethoven's teacher, Joseph Haydn, appears to have questioned his student's judgment in having it published. Although we're not going to begin today with the C minor trio, we will start with a brief discussion of Beethoven's relationship with the great Haydn. Haydn had passed through Bonn in December 1790, but it is not known if he met Beethoven at that time. But in July 1792, on a return trip, the Electoral Orchestra had honored Haydn with a special breakfast, and on that occasion, Beethoven had met with the older master and shown him one, or perhaps both, of his cantata scores, which Haydn praised. The idea that Beethoven might travel to Vienna to take lessons with Haydn was probably raised at that point, with the Elector apparently agreeing to bear the brunt of the expenses involved, an agreement which he seems to not have completely upheld. Once the journey had been agreed upon, several of Beethoven's colleagues prepared for him an album of well-wishes to mark the occasion. Certainly the most famous of these comments came from Count Waldstein, who wrote, With the help of assiduous labor, you shall receive Mozart's spirit from Haydn's hands. Of course, Mozart, who may well have met briefly with Beethoven in an earlier journey to Bonn, had recently passed away in December of 1791. Beethoven arrived in Vienna in November 1792 and immediately took action to arrange lessons with Haydn, who graciously charged the young composer no more than a token fee. Haydn, in fact, seems to have behaved generously toward Beethoven in a number of ways. He interceded at one point with the elector, attempting to gain Beethoven some additional financial support by demonstrating how much progress the young composer was making in Vienna. Unfortunately, the elector turned down the request, making it clear that he doubted that there was much progress at all, and perhaps it was time for Beethoven to return home to his duties in Bonn, which of course he never did. Haydn must have been annoyed, to say the least, when the elector pointed out to him that most of the works claimed by Beethoven to have been composed in Vienna had actually originated in his Bonn days. Many theories have been suggested to explain the less-than-intimate relationship between Beethoven and Haydn, certainly considered the greatest living composer in German-speaking lands at the time. Many of these concern Beethoven's lack of desire to offer filial respect to any older male authority figure after his experience with his father. But in one probable incident, this occasional friction seems to have come to a head. The story is told how Johannes Schenk, a respected composer, especially of comic operas, happened to take a look at some of the counterpoint exercises Beethoven had done for Haydn. Haydn, it seems, or at least so Schenck reported, had failed to mark a number of errors in Beethoven's work. Was this evidence of an overly casual approach? Was Haydn not taking Beethoven seriously as a student? Or had Haydn simply at this late stage in his career come to the conclusion that these sort of contrapuntal errors were not important enough to worry about. At any rate, according to Schenck's version, Beethoven was highly disgruntled 
and proceeded to secretly study with Schenck for a period. Now, not everyone accepts this story at face value. Beethoven biographer Jan Swafford, for example, finds it dubious. At any rate, the matter of Beethoven and his contrapuntal studies was taken care of eventually, when Haydn, who was about to return to London for his last trip there, arranged to have Beethoven study with Johann Georg Albrechtsberger, something of a specialist in this area, in his absence. Beethoven found the study with Albrechtsberger quite productive, although, as usual, there were occasions where he chafed under the admonitions of his new teacher, just as he had under Haydn. About Haydn's reaction to Beethoven's piano trio in C minor, I'll say more later, but for now, let's take a look at the piano trio in E-flat major. The work is in the standard four-movement format. The first movement, marked allegro, makes a highly formal but authoritative beginning with a pair of ascending triadic arpeggios on the tonic, followed by three quiet but emphatic full-bodied chords in piano and accompanying strings. Here's a simplified example of the first nine bars, the right hand of the piano only. The quickly ascending triadic shape which you heard three times in the first five bars, suggests once again a Mannheim skyrocket, similar to, but somewhat better developed than the one we encountered in the early piano quartet in E-flat major in episode two. While the first phrase is characterized by ascending movement and constant staccato markings, the answering phrase, which begins at the high point of the first, provides an effective contrast with its lyrical flow of eighth notes moving down the scale with a little ornamental detour at the lower end. Even with my reduced texture, you can hear that Beethoven is introducing a touch of chromaticism as early as the third bar, where a secondary dominant leans into the subdominant chord. But he's not really going anywhere, not at this point. Still, Beethoven throws in another mild surprise as the dominant seventh chord, which follows the subdominant chord, resolves deceptively to a C minor chord, something that you can't really hear in my stripped-down example, but which will be more obvious in just a minute. Neither of these harmonic gestures is in any way earth-shattering, and Beethoven ends the opening melodic statement with a nice, secure, dominant seventh Teutonic cadence. But it's interesting that he felt inclined to include both gestures in just the first few measures of the movement. Let's hear the beginning of the movement in an actual performance. You heard that the contributions from the violin and cello are initially rather modest. They double the piano's punctuating chords in the first four measures and then provide a modest counter-melody against the piano's descending scale passage. Once the piano's initial melody has come to a full stop on the tonic, the strings become more active, echoing the ascending skyrocket motive and even previewing the piano's next scale-wise flourish. 
All of this provides a link to the second half of the so-called first subject or first theme typical of sonata forms. It presents a new motive, a little of which you heard at the end of my example. This new, more lyrical melodic idea, which eventually leads to the modulatory transition, consists of a five-note motive that is twice sequenced a step higher, resulting in a gradually ascending shape with a yearning quality. Here's a simplified version of it. This four-bar phrase is immediately repeated in a more ornamented version, replete with additional non-harmonic tones. After a brief tale, in which the ascending triadic motive is heard several more times in piano and cello, we are led, after another solid cadence on the tonic, into the beginning of the modulatory transition, a series of bustling scale lines in the piano with short interjections from cello and violin. This predictably cadences in the key of the dominant, and we arrive at the second subject. Whereas the modulatory transition had been somewhat noisy, the second subject is very quiet, and introduced with a beautiful little two-measure lead-in from cello and violin. The second subject appears almost chorale-like at first glance, but the articulation pattern, the use of staccato markings, suggests otherwise. Still, it's generally homophonic in texture and initially moves in longer note values. The second subject moves fairly quickly towards C minor, tonicizing it twice, and giving the passage an almost modal feel. The second phrase starts in C minor, but wastes no time in reaffirming B-flat major, ending on the dominant of that key. The entire eight-bar period is then repeated, the melody an octave higher in the piano, with the violin supplying decorative scale lines against it. There are a number of piquant harmonic details here, not remarkable in themselves perhaps, but which adds substantially to the harmonic richness of the passage. We'll hear a little of the modulatory transition leading into the first part of the second subject. After the second restatement of the theme and a repeat of the last two measures, we're introduced to a gorgeous new melodic idea. Like the first subject, the second has two distinct parts, and in this case, the second part contains one of the most elegant melodies Beethoven had composed to that point.
It begins on the subdominant chord, features a distinctive falling fifth, and is quite short. The initial presentation is only two bars long. But it's a wonderful little melody, and Beethoven immediately begins to embroider it beautifully. After a few measures, he simplifies it somewhat, and proceeds to engage in a rapturous trio in which violin, cello, and piano all share the thematic material equally. Following this, we hear a transitional section, marked by piano trills, ornamenting a generally ascending scale line in a series of faster-moving scale passages. You heard a little of the beginning of that transition at the conclusion of my example. The end result of all of this is an emphatic cadence on F major. At this point, we are then introduced to the closing section. The theme is a fairly modest affair, consisting of staccato triplet scale passages leading to a simple lyrical phrase revolving around the third of the tonic chord. This proceeds for some time until it is interrupted by a more emphatic triplet pattern that eventually introduces the codetta, characterized by subtle syncopations in the bass and coquettish little violin trills, as we head for the cadence that ends the exposition. The development section immediately begins with the ascending triad motive, the sky racket theme, from the opening measures of the movement. This motive is somewhat predictably developed for several measures taking us through various tonal centers, including remote keys such as B-flat minor and G-flat major. Here's a little bit of the opening of the development section. Eventually, the ascending triad theme is exhausted, and Beethoven moves on to developing the main theme from the closing section, including the eighth note triplets. Near the end of the development, as the volume level is reduced first to piano and then pianissimo, Beethoven even introduces the codetta theme, minus the violin trills, but the last word is given to the closing section theme, as the development section builds to a fortissimo climax right before the recapitulation section begins. The first subject re-enters in exactly the way it was first introduced. In fact, there is little about the recapitulation that is surprising. The second subject, both parts, and closing section come back in the original tonic as expected, with the second half of the second subject sounding at least as exquisite as before. After about 19 measures of a transition, we come across the real coda, clearly marked by a final return to the skyrocket theme. There is actually a little mini second development section, increasingly common in Beethoven's later codas, that focuses, not surprisingly, 
on the same ascending triadic motive, but also tosses in a few others, even the delicate little Codetta theme, before heading to a triumphal final cadence on tonic. The slow movement in A-flat major 3-4 meter and marked Adagio Cantabile begins with a well-developed lyrical theme in the piano over a simple broken chord left-hand accompaniment. It's based initially on a three-note motive starting on the third of the tonic chord, C, moving to the upper neighbor, D-flat, and then descending by step down to the tonic. By the way, Angus Watson, in his always insightful book, Beethoven's Chamber Music in Context, sees a connection between this motive and the one leading into the second subject in Movement 1. This initial motive leads to a wide-span melody consisting of a series of ascending lines or arches, none starting from the same note. It's a promising melody, albeit an emotionally neutral one, and Beethoven brings it back again and again with various adornments throughout the movement. Formally speaking, the movement is something of a rondo, with the initial theme representing the refrain theme. But like a lot of slow-movement rondos, a fairly rare genre to begin with, the form is by no means an exact copy of the fast-movement prototype for the form. There are fewer well-developed episodes, and the use of transitions and retransitions is far from predictable. Following the initial eight-bar statement of the theme, we hear a slightly peculiar four-bar phrase of rather sparse staccato eighth notes in the violin, cello, and piano. This segment seems at first hearing to be an unlikely continuation of what came before, but will prove to be most effective when returning in a richly elaborated fashion later in the movement. After the staccato passage, we return to the main theme with the main melodic idea now presented in the violin in a luxuriously ornamented form. At this point in a rondo, one might well expect a modulatory transition that moves the key to the dominant for the presentation of the first episode. But there is no transition whatsoever at this point, and the first episode, a lovely new melody in the cello, answered tastefully by the violin, begins immediately.
As you heard, the initial eight-part period trails off with a few repetitions of the last descending scale passage and an echo of the staccato eighth note passage. But then, rather than passing to a retransition passage designed to prepare for the return of the rondo refrain theme, we are given another beautiful passage, really part two of the first episode, which is based initially on the second measure of the violin's response, the descending minor triad, and which starts on the subdominant of the key, as did, by the way, the second half of the first subject in the first movement of this work. Whether this is a purposeful connection or not, the effect in both cases is similar. The second part of the episode is even more effective than the first half. A final lyrical phrase, very much in the spirit of the opening lyrical phrase by the cello, confirms the key of E-flat major as the episode finally comes to an end. I suggested earlier that this was not a conventional rondo form, and there are more quirks, surprising modulations, and interesting details ahead as we move through the rest of the movement. But for now, we're going to move on to the next movement, a scherzo in E-flat major. This scherzo in 3-4 time and marked allegro assai provides an extreme example of the sort of motivic persistence for which Beethoven was to become so well known. Starting after a pickup note C, an unlikely three-quarter note motive C, B natural C, in the violin eventually comes to dominate the movement, although when we first hear it, it yields immediately to a much broader, contrasting idea, a series of dotted half notes played in octaves by a violin and cello. The first five bars are actually somewhat confusing in terms of their tonal implications when first heard. Are we in C minor, heading toward F minor? But it all goes by very quickly, of course, and almost before we know it, the situation has clarified itself and we cadence securely in E-flat major. The conclusion of this initial 16-bar presentation doesn't mean the end of our three-note motive, however. The next period continues to exploit the motive in the right hand of the piano, presenting it a step higher on each recurrence, all the time alternating with three-note scale fragments in the strings and piano left hand. Beethoven continues on in this fashion for several measures, at which point the violin takes over and repeats the passage, accompanied with increased rhythmic energy by cello and piano, until we arrive at the double bar and the whole section cadences on the dominant. Let's hear it that far without the repeat. The second part of the scherzo is quite a bit longer than the first, but continues to press the development of the original three-note motive. At the beginning of this new section, the first four bars of the opening theme are heard in the left hand of the piano, playing in the treble clef, but starting on B-flat. It's soon imitated at the octave by the right hand, and, after a number of repetitions of the same three-note motive, the violin also joins in the imitation, followed almost immediately thereafter by the cello. Eventually, the imitation breaks off, at which point the music is heading towards C minor. But as the three-note motive returns yet again in the piano, and some clever, if rather abrupt, modulations take place into other keys, the passage eventually winds down. 
but that simply gives Beethoven the opportunity to reload the original theme, which he then presents at the original pitch level. This concludes as it did originally in E-flat major. At that point, Beethoven takes the opportunity to drive this three-note motive even more deeply into our consciousness, if that's possible, by having the violin stated seven times in a row, starting on E-flat. This is not quite as wearying as it sounds, however, because Beethoven uses this opportunity to introduce us to some of the cleverest chromatic harmony in the movement, a series of secondary dominant and minor subdominant chords that provide an ever-changing harmonic color field against which the repetitions take place. Here's the beginning of the second section to the point at which the original theme re-enters. The very quiet trio section, in the normal key of A-flat major, is much briefer and not especially remarkable, so we're going to move on now to the next movement. The finale in E-flat again and 2-4 meter is marked presto. The final movement of the trio makes use of a conventional sonata form, albeit one with some charming eccentricities in the development and recapitulation sections. The frolicsome first subject immediately grabs the listener's attention with a quick ascending leap of a tenth from G, the third of the tonic triad, to B-flat, the fifth, an octave higher. After three such leaps, the melody marches quickly down the tonic triad. After four bars of this, the violin, accompanied by cello, introduces a contrasting phrase, initially circulating around the flat seventh of the dominant chord, A-flat, and then working its way down the scale to D, as the harmony cadences on the dominant. The second subject is simplicity itself. The violin initially arpeggiating down a B-flat triad starting on F over simple alternations of tonic and dominant chords. But this ever-so-cheerful tune is interrupted by a passage that is both unexpected and mysterious. Based on the initial descending triad of the second subject, it introduces a series of full diminished seventh chords, none of which resolve in the normal functional way. We 
We're going to move on now to the development section, which begins in a predictable fashion in the key of the dominant B-flat major and with a restatement of the initial motive of the first subject. But the motive is soon reinterpreted in the key of G minor and the second phrase of the first subject follows suit. The next motive to be taken up is a short little rhythmic cell that began the closing section and also made an appearance in the codera. This motive is tossed around zestfully, intermingled with rapid scale lines and broken third patterns. Eventually the G minor tonic chord becomes G major, which quickly turns out to be the dominant of C minor. Beethoven does some casual tonicizing here and there, but we stick with C minor for a surprisingly long time as the volume level and intensity of rhythmic interplay both increase. A little more than halfway through the development section, the rhythmic activity diminishes somewhat, and the 16th note activity is replaced by 8th note Alberti bass patterns in the piano, while the violin and cello lapse into more lyrical passages dominated by longer note values. These are given an almost romantic feel by a series of crescendos and decrescendos on the long-held notes. As you heard, this new idea goes on for some time, eventually maneuvering us away from C minor and toward B flat major, which will eventually return us to the tonic in time for the recapitulation, a little of which you heard at the end of my excerpt. This is not exactly the typical development section, although it started out as one. These longer, more sustained phrases, with their passionate dynamic swells, certainly provide an effective contrast to the short motivic work that came before. But whether they do a good job of heightening the tension before the return of the first subject is another matter. Why did Beethoven go out of his way to slow down the momentum at the end of the development section at just the point where one would have expected a major buildup to the triumphal return of the first subject? It may be because Beethoven felt that the first subject was too slight, not sufficiently powerful or assertive to warrant a big dramatic preparation. In fact, the first theme, its attractive features notwithstanding, seems almost as if it would be more suitable as a refrain theme in a rondo, a context where its playful qualities might be more appropriate. For whatever reason Beethoven decided not to preface the return of the first subject with a powerful build-up, 
This movement provides an excellent example of an early composition in which the style of the development section is carefully tailored to the specific nature of the thematic material featured in the exposition. The recapitulation proceeds normally at first. The first theme is brought back intact, as is the second theme, this time in the tonic key. But the second subject is cut off prematurely, and we move immediately to the tonally ambiguous series of diminished chords encountered after the second subject in the exposition, now decorated with descending chromatic lines. The coda begins by tossing around the short motive that initiated the first subject, often quite cleverly with some interesting rhythmic displacements. But the coda is not merely an abbreviated second development section in which the same familiar motives get trotted out for another look. Unexpectedly, a diminished chord, a 7 full diminished 7th, functioning apparently in the key of E-flat, has its top two notes reinterpreted as G-sharp and B-natural, bringing about a common tone modulation to the distant key of E-major, the Neapolitan or lowered second scale degree in the original tonic of E-flat major, which was increasingly becoming one of the composer's favorite exotic relationships. In the key of E major, Beethoven presents the second subject in what is virtually its original, full-blown version. A slower-moving chromatic passage in violin and cello began to undermine the E major tonality, and the job is finished by some clanging fortissimo chords in the piano on a B-flat dominant seventh. The second subject is then presented again in the much safer key of E-flat major, the original tonic. Here it is modified slightly and developed a bit, but that passage too is interrupted, this time by a series of fragments based on the passage of diminished seventh chords heard earlier in this extremely eclectic and rather unpredictable recapitulation. This series of diminished chords is embellished very richly, almost impressionistically at times, by the piano until another idea makes a return appearance the swelling lyrical string passages first heard in the latter part of the development section. This is just about the last recognizable thematic utterance, however. We move quickly to high-energy passages of scales in broken third patterns, reminiscent of the coda and a version of the rhythmic motive first heard in the piano. But after all this, we're not quite finished with the original motive that began the movement, it makes one final appearance, stated in a rather ethereal version, before the second phrase of the first subject returns fortissimo and punctuated with sforzandi to bring us back to earth and quickly to the end of the movement. This is a fascinating finale. Beethoven takes some chances in introducing some vague, almost mysterious passages from time to time, and his approach to both the development and recapitulation sections shows a willingness to set aside normal expectations in a way that was unusual for him at this point in his composing career. Haydn was in attendance at the first public performance of the Opus I piano trios at the Palace of Prince Lishnovsky in August 1795, and it is there that he is quoted as expressing reservations about publishing the third of these, the piano trio in C minor, which had actually been Beethoven's favorite. The general reaction to all three works from the assembled audience was apparently quite positive, but Haydn expressed some surprise that the third would be published along with the other two because, quote, he had not imagined it would be so rapidly and easily grasped and so favorably taken up by the public. 
The first of the piano trios certainly has some quirks of its own, as I pointed out earlier, but to Haydn, the C minor trio was clearly in another category. What was he reacting to or against in the third trio? We'll withhold speculation on that point for a little while and begin by taking a look at the first movement in 3-4 meter and marked Allegro con brio. The key of C minor clearly held some special significance for Beethoven, and some of his most intense and dramatic music was composed in that key. This trio proves no exception, and some of its special qualities are evident right from the beginning. How would one characterize the first subject? It has been described variously by commentators over the years. Roger Fisk describes it as neither innocent nor urbane, and restless and questioning. The first four bars introduce one of the most important thematic elements in the movement, one that dominates the development section almost from beginning to end. Key elements here include the ornamental turn in the piano right-hand version of the opening motive, missing in the violin and cello versions, and especially the rhythm of the third bar, that dotted quarter, eighth quarter pattern. We'll hear the first nine measures, ending with a fermata on the downbeat of the tenth. The opening measures waste no time in establishing the key firmly. The first two bars are restricted to notes of the tonic chord, and the second the notes of the dominant. But while there's no real tonal ambiguity, there is a palpable sense of tension as early as bar 9, despite the relatively quiet dynamic levels, where the diminished 7th chord on the leading tone is mounted on top of a dominant pedal as the violin floats a brief but expressive cadenza above it. The resolution to the dominant chord in the next measure clears up the temporary dissonance neatly enough, although a strategically placed violin appoggiatura puts even that in doubt. But the statement has been made. This will be an emotionally charged first movement. And after measure 10, it becomes rhythmically charged as well, as the three staccato eighth notes usher in the second main idea of the first subject. This motive controls the next seven bars, after which a third idea, one characterized by weak beats for Sandi and dramatic upward leaps of a minor sixth or perfect fifth, is introduced. This is imitated two bars later with the same vigor by the violin with accompaniment from the cello. Some twelve bars later, the first subject comes to a close on the dominant, with some swirling scale lines strategically doubled by violin and cello. The modulatory transition begins immediately afterward with the opening measures of the first subject presented in the key of A-flat major. 
what happens next is actually quite sophisticated, harmonically speaking. After five bars, Beethoven interrupts the flow with a first inversion flat submedian chord, actually written as an F-flat chord, which also happens to be the Neapolitan sixth chord in the key to which we're heading, E-flat major. The root is a circuitous one and includes a couple of diminished seventh chords along the way, and our short-term goal actually turns out to be E-flat minor, which Beethoven dances around for some time, employing an intense transition motive that clearly owes quite a bit to the staccato eighth note motive from the first subject. Ultimately, a gentle linking passage, which you just heard, dissipates the dramatic urgency of E-flat minor, the clouds open, and a light, playful theme in E-flat major appears in the piano. The theme benefits from a simple but effective little countermelody in the violin. After eight bars, the theme is passed to the violin as the key changes to A-flat major. Following this second presentation, a lovely little tale to the second subject appears in the violin. Short but sweet and sporting a delicate internal pedal, this little tale is immediately repeated in A-flat minor, as you heard, producing a bit of tension in the process. This merges into a transition to the closing section, a particularly effective one in which the tension hinted at in earlier climaxes becomes fully realized, peaking with a very quiet but austerely strident interval of a tritone, E-flat to A, in the solo violin. This is followed by a more robust passage in block chords that staunchly reaffirms the key of E-flat and leads to an emphatic cadence signaling the end of the closing section, which you just heard. This closing section is dominated by fortissimo swirling scale lines in the piano and violin and cello motives derived freely from the opening measures of the first subject. And while we may be in the closing section area, we find that the harmonic ground is still shifting as Beethoven sequences quickly through a series of tonal areas. In time, the music quiets, and Beethoven introduces a beautiful transition between the more robust beginning of the closing section and the codetta to come. Watson aptly describes this passage as 
almost Schubertian in its longing and despair. By the way, Watson thinks of this passage as the closing section, and not without cause, although it's lacking in any solid cadential activity to mark it off. Still, different people hear these things differently, and it is a remarkable passage. Finally, the brief codetta arrives, marked by the motives from the second part of the first subject, and the exposition comes to an end over a series of tonic pedals in E-flat major. The development section begins in E-flat minor, but with the aid of some chromatic sleight of hand, slips first to B major and then F minor. Here's a little of that development section. As you heard, the motive from bars 3 and 4 of the first subject is passed from the piano to the cello and violin as a quiet, dolce passage gives way to an extroverted fortissimo one. It's not until Beethoven has provided a secure cadence in F minor that a new motive, derived from the second part of the first subject, begins to dominate in the piano. As we move to A-flat major, first the cello and then the violin begin to contribute comments on the same motive. As the development section continues, we hear another series of very clever chromatic modulations before we arrive at the dominant of C minor to prepare us for the recapitulation. The recap of the first half of the first subject is straightforward enough, but before we get to the second half, Beethoven engages in a little extra development of the opening theme. He starts this in C major and, through a chromatic modulation, moves to D flat major, his favorite Neapolitan relationship again, as the two motives from the opening four bars of the movement are combined in violin and cello. Eventually, the second half of the first subject is brought back in C minor, and things proceed quite normally for a while. The transition to the second subject is actually quite short, and when it arrives in C minor, the theme is more haunting than one would have supposed, given how cheerful-sounding it had seemed in its original incarnation. The closing section is recapitulated in good order, and the lyrical linking passage, that Schubertian one, is as effective as ever. A version of the original Codetta returns, now modified to achieve an even greater level of intensity. This extends into the coda, where the use of the tonic pedal in the last several measures guarantees that the level of dissonant intensity is unrelenting through the final measures. 
Although this movement certainly contains a variety of thematic types and moods, it is in the end its level of intensity that leaves the strongest impression. Movement 2 in E-flat major and 2-4 meter is a theme in variations, which, although not particularly deep or profound, features some attractive details and passages of great beauty. Beethoven's theme is simple and pleasantly serene. Its first four-bar phrase, descending in broken thirds, is played by the piano over primarily straightforward tonic and dominant harmonies. The second phrase begins similarly, but soon ascends chromatically. It peaks on tonic and then engages in a little cadential figure ending on the dominant, its momentum spurred on by a couple of secondary dominant chords. It then reports back immediately to tonic for the beginning of the next phrase. Violin and cello take over at this point, presenting the theme again with a slightly modified harmonization. It ends again on the dominant, preparing for the second part of the theme. But the second part doesn't provide any true contrast. Starting like the first on a pickup note, it opens by repeating the first bar of the first section a couple of times, still attractively harmonized by the left hand's thirds in contrary motion. After a cadence back on tonic, the second part of the second section is a near duplicate of the first eight bars of the movement, the violin taking over the melody after the first phrase. The result, not counting a little cadential tag, is the familiar rounded binary form of A, A prime, B, A double prime. After saturating the listener rather thoroughly with a simple theme, Beethoven mostly ignores it in his first variation. The most prominent mode of heard is a new one, a combination of a turn and a large ascending leap, first a sixth and then a minor seventh, in the piano heard over a variant of the original chord progression. Here's just a little bit of the first part. The second half of the variation holds closer to the original melodic shape with a filled-in version of the original phrase in the piano right hand, imitated at the octave a beat later in the left hand. Variation 2 has the cello opening with a 16th note variation of the original melody, 
against syncopated descending triadic figures in the violin and later the piano. The violin and cello reverse rolls four bars later. Variation 3 once again features the piano, with prominent appoggiaturas and sequentially based 30-second note patterns keeping the rhythmic momentum high. The second half of the variation turns more to broken third patterns, but again features imitation between the piano's right and left hands. A clever use of pizzicato in cello and violin lend a particularly whimsical effect. The minor key variation that follows once again represents one of the high points of the movement. While the shape of the original melody remains largely intact, we have nevertheless entered a completely different emotional world because of the richer harmonization. The cello is featured first, while the violin takes up the melody four bars later. The piano provides a new, lightly syncopated accompaniment and exhibits brief crescendos and decrescendos that add to the emotional tone. In the second half of the variation, the violin leads the way with a figure based on the original melody, but the added sforzandi and accented dissonances created against the cello's canon-like imitation lend a totally new level of tension. The opening phrase returns quietly in the piano as the variation softly fades away. Variation 5 is both more extroverted and more frothy, a purely decorative exercise. Back in E-flat major, the theme is presented in the violin, with some double stops, with cello accompaniment, while the piano spins gently chromatic lines against it. For the second half of the variation, Beethoven substitutes 16th note triplets for the 16ths of earlier variations, but the imitation at the octave one beat later remains intact. As insubstantial, although charming, as this variation might be, its conclusion, a deceptive cadence on C minor, suggests that there is more to come, and the coda that follows is by no means a disappointment. Although not lengthy, the coda begins in a rather mysterious, even puzzling manner. Based melodically on the familiar broken thirds of the initial theme, the first four of five chords that are encountered in the piano are largely foreign to the key of E flat. 
and initially the key seems to stabilize only in C minor. Some familiar figures make a fleeting appearance, for example, the 16th note triplets from Variation 5, which are here transformed into a gentle, serene flow that escorts us to the quiet conclusion of the movement. Here are the final measures of Variation 5 leading into the coda. Although its effects are subtle, it is this coda, more than any of the individual variations, with the possible exception of the E-flat minor variation, that reminds us just how far Beethoven has come with his C minor piano trio. The next movement, a minuet marked quasi-allegro, certainly displays a lot of energy and a number of opportunities for the pianist to engage in some semi-virtuoso flourishes but it is on the whole a bit on the conservative side, and we're going to skip over it and move on to the finale. How does the finale fit in with the other three movements? It begins quite dramatically with a robust quasi-introduction. This opening does not function in quite the same way as the other introductions we've observed in Beethoven's chamber music. It's the same tempo as the rest of the movement and is repeated along with the rest of the exposition. It also makes an appearance in the development section, although that is by no means unheard of even for true introductions. It is clearly separated from the first subject proper by a dramatic fermata after the seventh measure but it is motivically related to that first subject. The major thirds at the top of the arpeggio are inverted to make up a key motivic element. The initial statement of the first subject is 12 bars in length, at which point the piano takes the melody while the violin provides a counter-melody of pulsating eighth notes against the longer, sustained tones of the cello.
Of course, those repeated descending broken thirds in the first third and sixth measures also summon up the arpeggios from the previous movement as well, suggesting that Beethoven was consciously creating motivic links across movements. Just as crucial, however, is the descending minor second in the second measure of the first subject, itself set up by a descending leap. The pattern has been smoothed out somewhat by measure 6 into a stepwise flow, and it is that pattern which is played out for the next three measures as we move from the dramatic urgency of C minor to the new key of E flat major. But both versions of the motive, the descending half step and the stepwise pattern, are to play an important role at several points in the movement. As you heard, the second statement of the melody, the one in which the piano takes the lead, is extended to 15 bars with a repeated cadential pattern and is followed by another fortissimo statement of the introduction, which in this instance serves as a link to the modulatory transition. After another fermata, the transition begins, already locked into the relative major from the opening measures. Although the transition has no heavy-duty modulation to carry through, it keeps itself busy with a number of references to first subject motives in both the cello and piano. And eventually there is some chromatic activity, about halfway through the transition section where we begin to head to E-flat minor. At that point, Beethoven's sforzando markings start to become more insistent and a certain amount of dramatic tension is once again stirred up. It's fairly short-lived, however, and a gentle descending staccato scale line delivers us safely back to E-flat major before the second subject begins. The second subject is a more lyrical, serene affair, unfolding mostly in two-bar phrases, with the second a sequential repetition of the first and the third phrase reaching up to the upper octave before making its way down. The violin takes the melody next, its version departing from the original in measures 6 through 8, as it drops an octave from the E-flat and circles around the G. It also features its own little tag, repeating the last four bars of the theme before cadencing in preparation for the closing section. The closing section, which you heard just a little bit of at the end of my excerpt, begins with a reference to the assertive ascending arpeggios of the introduction, while violin and cello remain busy with accented repetitions of the repeated thirds from the first subject. The section blends into the codetta, which features some new offbeat sforzandi and moves toward A-flat minor as the motives from the first subject stay continuously in play. The first ending of the exposition moves the key cleverly back in the direction of C minor for the repeat, while the second ending starts heading toward F minor. Not surprisingly, the development section starts with a repeat of the introduction, this time in F minor. It skips for the moment any reference to the first subject, however, and instead the piano quotes the second, more lyrical subject in F major against a violin countermelody. The violin then takes charge, still in F major. But then Beethoven provides a wonderful common tone modulation from F major to D flat major 
and the melody is repeated once again in the violin, this time sounding miraculously different because of its juxtaposition to an exotic new key. After presenting the theme intact, the composer then starts fragmenting the second subject, breaking it into two measure components and modulating first to E-flat minor and then back to F minor. At times, violin and cello lead the way, with the piano providing decorative scale lines against the thematic fragments, and at times, the roles are reversed. Eventually, we move toward G minor and then C minor, in which key Beethoven launches into repeated octave leaps in the left-hand bass line, beneath an arpeggiated descent down a dominant seventh chord on G, in a passage that is reminiscent of one in his piano sonata in F minor, opus 2, number 1, which he may well have been working on concurrently with the piano trios. This fiery passage gives way to a long chromatic line in the piano before the recapitulation begins, minus the introduction. Here's an excerpt from the development section, beginning a little before the modulation from F major, where a version of the second subject is first presented in the piano, to D flat major, where the violin takes over. You'll also hear a bit of the fragmenting of the second subject motives and the beginning of the tonal wandering I just referred to. In the recapitulation, the first subject is presented in the piano first, with the violin taking the second presentation, the reverse of the exposition. This time, the cello also takes a turn with the first subject, overlapping with the recapitulation of the original modulatory transition. If there are a few major surprises in the recapitulation, there are some subtle changes of interest. A long dominant pedal in the cello against the return of the second subject this time in C major, gives it a rather different feel. And the last four bars of the second subject, which had been repeated in the exposition, are now heard three times, moving toward C minor in the process. The closing section and codetta are brought back in predictable fashion, but the intensity level is somewhat higher because of the C minor key. The coda introduces no new motivic elements, but does feature a very surprising key change. The root of a dominant chord on G slips down a half step, and the key of B minor appears almost out of thin air, bringing with it a reference to the first subject. But it's the first half step motive from the first subject that ultimately dominates the coda although the movement actually concludes in a surprisingly quiet mood 
with a series of C major scales traded back and forth between the right and left hands of the piano, and we end on a gentle pianissimo C major chord. Here's a final excerpt from the coda to the end of the movement. Beethoven considered this work to be the best of the three trios from Opus 1, and for good reason. Its first movement has a number of strikingly original features, and yet is completely logical and coherent. The slow movement, minuetto, and finale are more orthodox, but still contain some interesting and innovative features. So what is there about Beethoven's third piano trio that apparently gave Haydn so much pause that he purportedly advised Beethoven not to publish it? Historians and commentators have suggested a variety of reasons. The work is too explicitly emotional. It introduces chromaticism for coloristic effects rather than just for bringing about modulations. The work is too erratic in its approach to form. There is no simple explanation for Haydn's lack of enthusiasm about the C minor piano trio. It seems reasonable to think that Haydn may have been reacting against some of the novelties that appear in the first and fourth movements, and to a lesser degree, the second and third. Haydn was apparently in London for the period in which Beethoven had been working on the third piano trio, and, not having seen it in its earlier stages of composition, he was perhaps somewhat taken aback by encountering some features he did not expect. At any rate, the three trios are more than worthy candidates for Beethoven's first published works. In the next episode, we'll look at the piano sonatas of Opus 2. Thank you.